Hello, everybody. Today we have Paul with us, who was a founding team member at Square. Before that, he was an entrepreneur in residence at SV Angel, and then he had been there with tech projects, involved in some capacity with tech projects for last ten plus years. Paul, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to Mailman Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's uh, it's good to meet you. Paul, to start with, why don't you just take a couple of minutes, just telling what are you up to these days? I saw on Twitter you are. contemplating doing a rolling fund are you involved in any other tech projects these days what is everything that you are uh, up to these days yeah i am thinking about doing a rolling fund uh, i think that uh, angelus is doing a really good job with rolling funds and i think it's a, an opportunity that's going to grow over time in general these days i'm i'm trying to maintain as much control over my calendar as possible i think that okay. that's like a, a valuable thing to have in your life at this stage of my life i spend a lot of time reading about history and economics although i have like some internal debate about whether or not the value of that is okay. meeting up with strangers including people like you uh investing i'm investing in very few startups these days for my personal funds i'm also investing in rolling funds and i did some uh, options trading in the public markets last year yes, i like okay. to spend as much of my time around as creative people um as possible usually creative people before they're actually founders because that they're just really excited about something okay. it tends to lead to like just really interesting moments but and sometimes it leads to actually investing in their companies uh but that is the point it's just like interesting people are interesting got it okay so i have a few questions follow up questions i'll go one by one how do you find these creative people before they are founders yeah it's an interesting question it's people ask me that because that's how you hypothetically invest in startups okay but it's just that you like talk to interesting people and you have interesting opinions and then they introduce you to their friends and it's weird because it. the word networking has this like gross feel to yes. it like you're like going to a conference to do something and like you're like <laughs> trying to get something but if you're just like excited about stuff and talk about things that you like other people want to talk about the things that they like and if you're interesting they also introduce you to other people got got it and has it has it has it ever happened that you met a creative smart person who was not a founder but because you met him or her he or she became a founder probably yeah i i hope this doesn't feel self-centered but occasionally people come out okay. uh like years later and they're just like something you told me actually caused me to rethink something and start a company and they're probably being overly complimentary it's okay It's absolutely ridiculous to give anyone other than the founder credit because there's just so much work involved in being a um a founder and taking that risk to your career. But people have occasionally said that and sometimes it's there's that like I think it's Katarina fake quote where it's like the best time to start a company is like 5 years ago or 2 years ago but the second best time yeah. is now. Yes, sometimes people yes. just need like a little bit of a now push to believe in themselves. So your answer gives me a sense that there had been more than one instance so there had been many people who met you and became founder afterwards have you seen some patterns where these creative intelligent smart people have a blind spot for themselves yeah it's weird i was talking about this actually yesterday a a friend was a management consultant and effectively her job was to go in and tell ceos like how to how to do their job and she had a lot of clever things that she said including things like inventory is expensive but um bizarrely she was starting her career uh, her 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 startup and she had a lot of inventory and she was like it's so expensive i have all this storage costs and all these things but it's so convenient and i like had to there's something weird about the fact that she was able to teach this idea to someone else but when it came to applying it to her own life um uh, it was harder 
You know, it's like, yeah. it's weird yes. to have the outside perspective and also be able to like, to be the thing that you're teaching other people sometimes. It's and it's definitely just a, an outside view. I mean, like she did extremely well at her startup and uh, it was very rewarding to see how uh, well she executed. But just like every once in a while, you get lucky and you happen to be at the right place at the right time and be able to give people advice. Absolutely. Okay. So I don't know if you agree with this, but I read it somewhere. It's uh, it goes something like this: that uh, many founders have some sort of some uh, level of delusion about the world, which helps them stay motivated and work on something. Do you agree with it at any uh, length, or do you outright disagree with it? Yeah, I think there's definitely a sort of delusion. You have to. Um... You have to really believe that you can, it's weird. It feels like there's like success is like right around the corner. And sometimes it can feel that way for like five years, but it turns out that like success is just like making like half a percent, you know, improvements every week or something like that for five years, where it's just like making something really small, slightly better over and over and over again. And you don't realize that these small wins just compound over years, but um, they do. And then eventually you end up with something that's like 5X or 10X or 100X bigger than like you started with. And the quicker you can make these things compound, the better, but you have to, you have to like delude yourself into believing that you can do them in the first place. And, I, and have you seen similar sense of delusion with all the smart people who were not the founder yet? Yeah, it feels like there's a lot of, there's definitely a lot of like delusion in some sort of way. And there's like a lot of like, yeah, I don't know how to describe it. People don't, people don't always realize how much work it is and they don't realize how often they're going to uh, hear the word no. Sometimes okay. early employees at companies talk to me about starting a company and I try and condition them to their first fundraise and say like, okay, you might have to like, talk to 50 people and 30 of them will say no, or you have to talk to 200 people and 150 of them will say no to invest in your company. And they just like, can't believe that people will say no to investing in their company because in their head, their company is this yes. perfect thing because they haven't really started it yet. But yeah. when they actually start it, they realize how much work it takes to just produce a vision that can be compelling to other people. And then they have to actually go to the person and explain the vision clearly enough so that the person decides that it's worth risking their money in this startup because to them, before they've done all these things, the, the startup is like obviously gonna have massive success because it's so much easier to criticize other people's startups. So you can like you can yep. look at someone else's startup and just be like, oh, it'd be really easy to create this, but you don't realize yep. the thousands of decisions and hours it takes to make just a really good experience. Absolutely. Okay, so changing the track, I was actually on a website and it says 10 years in tech uh, with tech projects. Is it like, when was the last time your website was updated? Anything? So recently? I think I wrote that website in 2017. So I was counting 2007 to 2017. So those are the things I worked on during those years. Yeah. I, I mean, I was working on tech since like I was in high school, so the 90s, but it's uh, that's that website only really focused on those 10 years, which just happened so, to be uh, a good anniversary. Got it. So if we have to understand a little bit about your beginnings, uh, where do you want to describe it? Would it be from your high school or something that you mentioned social mode on your website? Yeah, I'll I'll try and go through a thing. It's I've definitely had a winding career. In high school, I, I just liked loved the web and all things the web. My friend Jesse got me into programming, I think in middle school, but it was on like QBasic and then the web came out. And so I ended up making websites because that's what everyone made. And obviously there weren't like any apps at that point or even cell phones for that matter. 
After that, I, I went to electrical engineering because I, I thought electrical engineering was about programming, which was naive <laughs> at the point. And I became an electrical engineer at Georgia Tech. I briefly worked on um, airplane parts of various mm -hmm. capacities, but I was always working on websites for fun on the side. And I applied to Y Combinator, which uh -huh. um, was definitely a, a huge direction change in my career. At the time, like Y Combinator now is like this relatively prestigious situation, but at the time Y Combinator was like not as obviously a good idea. Um, many okay. people considered Y Combinator to be a, a ripoff because they were taking a huge percentage of equity for a very small amount of money. Obviously, this might be obvious in retrospect, but they realized like Y Combinator was like a doorway. It's like in order to get into the valley, you can come to Y Combinator. And it wasn't really obvious to everyone else in, who didn't live in Silicon Valley or live anywhere close to Silicon Valley or anyone else who had ever done a startup, um, how to start a startup or what an angel investor was or what a VC was. And so getting people in the door, including me, was like like a very different thing. You know, it's like if you don't know where to start or who to start with or just to be around other people that wanted to start similar things was really powerful. Yeah. After Y Combinator, there were some other projects along the way, which like I made some Facebook apps that went like very viral and got some news because of that. And then I was working on credit card payments uh, with my roommate at the time, which was, it was his idea to work on credit card payments. And I happened to be helping him. And because of that, I ended up talking to angels about credit card payments. And then someone mentioned that Jack uh, Dorsey, who I knew previously for, from another story, was working on something called Squirrel. And I ended up joining Square as part of the founding team because I'd already like, I was already really excited about just making something that could like be really relevant to a lot of people. Credit card payments and merchant solutions were really bad at the time. And also the idea of working in banking sounded like ambitious. There are so many like, what they call them, competitor banks these days. And FinTech is like a hot word. But in yep. 2009, 2010, the idea of saying that you were making a bank just like made people like sort of sort of cringe. It feels like the way people talk about SpaceX yes. now, where you're like, oh, I'm making a rocket ship. And people are like, that sounds really hard. Well, in 2010, making a bank sounded really hard, um, which is a cool sort of effect how the Valley seems to just go exponential. Absolutely. Okay, so I was reading on TechCrunch about your story about uh, Square. So it went something like uh, you met Jack Dorsey. Uh, you talked about Squirrel at that point in time. Square yeah. was called Squirrel. You said no, but two weeks later you came back and you finally said yes and joined Square. What happened in those two weeks? Did you do some research? Did you find something else, some new information? Yeah. Wow. To be honest, that was a long time ago and I'm not sure I can remember the details. I might actually be able to remind myself of the details by going and reading that article. But if I had to guess, I would probably say the my roommate at the time decided to stop working on credit card payments, okay. albeit temporarily, and went back to school. And so I went from having a, a role or a, like a project that I was working on to having spent not even that long, like three months of my life learning about credit card payments, but apparently nothing to show for it. Got it. Brilliant. Okay, so Paul, uh, coming back to today, what does your typical day look like? What time do you get up? What time do you have to go to bed? And what do you do during lunch? Like, how do you spend your day? A typical day and an um, ideal day are very different. But um, <laughs> my typical day, I usually wake up at like 7 a.m. There's usually about three things that I try and do in my typical day. I try and like work out regularly. Workouts don't have to be super strenuous, just like a three mile walk usually, okay. which is mostly defined by going to a park that I like and coming back from the park that I like. Okay. And um, I do daily pages, which is a 
semi-mindful activity that's inspired by a book called The Artist Way, which has been out for 25 or 30 years. It's very popular, but it's basically just journaling. You like write down some ideas and like figure stuff out early in the day. Uh, and I also try and write down three things that I want to accomplish every day. Okay. If I feel like I get three things done every day, then I feel like I, I feel unburdened to spend the rest of the day in ways that I, I want to, which might just be working more. But the three things just helps me decide um, what the goals are, like what's the most important thing for me to get done. And it can be a wide variety of tasks, but it's just like three things that are important rather than whatever, you know, I might happen to want to get done after I finish my coffee in the morning. So these three things has to be some big things or like anything small. So for example, hey, I'll just drop an email to somebody to discuss an idea. It could be as small as this. It could be absolutely the smallest thing in the world. It just has to be the most important things, I think. Okay. So I used to do three things and the three things would be roughly like eight hours of work. And sometimes I would underestimate and I would not finish the three things, but I try and not shame myself for doing that. I'm just like, well, just estimate better next time. And sometimes I would underestimate and I'd sometimes underestimate by a lot. Like I'd finish three things in like, you know, two hours and I'd be like, okay, I feel motivated to do more stuff. And once you have the momentum going, it's actually easier to get a lot of stuff done. And sometimes the three things I can get them done in like four hours, but Somehow, if I do, if I actually choose three things and get them done, I usually get more than if I try and do as much work as possible. It's almost like giving myself a very fixed number of things that I can do um, each day before I'm allowed to reward myself by going to the park or like, you know, doing anything that I want, just like getting some sunlight. Um, I somehow get more than if I try and do as much as possible. Fantastic. And uh, for how long have you been doing these three things? How many years? Uh, the habit has developed on and off for about 10 years. The first time I did it was in the period between working at or being part of Y Combinator and working at Square. I did it while I was working at home. And it was just like, I, I didn't have to work at that time. I was taking a break, but I wanted to work on a project. And I was just like, if I get three things done, then that's great. And then I would walk to Starbucks because that was the only choice that was walkable in my neighborhood. And it was like Gainesville, Florida and um, uh, read science fiction books at Starbucks for like two hours. And oh, wow. that was my way of rewarding myself every single day. Oh, wow. Oh, which is your favorite science fiction book? There's this book, which I really like recommending called Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Charles Sheffield. There's two books with that title. And so it's very important that you look for the one by Charles Sheffield. Okay. One of the things I really love about it is the time scale in the book is uh, extraordinary. Most books take place in the, the scale of like, you know, 10 to 15 years or maybe even like a single year or six months. The time scale of tomorrow and tomorrow lasts for as long as the universe itself. Oh, brilliant. Okay. So again, coming back to three things, does any of those three things involve anything creative to be done in the day? Do you spend any time during the day to do some, some, something creative, any sort of deep work? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I haven't fully um, researched the concept of deep work. I understand okay. some, I've heard people refer to the phrase, but I can't speak to it myself. I've got it. Okay. So you mentioned something very early in our conversation that you try to keep your calendars empty. Yes, I try and keep my calendar under my control, which often okay. means... Got it. And how do you do it? I mean, how do you decide what goes on your calendar and what doesn't? It's hard to articulate, but it's very much like a gut feel. It's like if people want spend time with me for some reason, whether or not they want to seek investment or if they want to get advice on something or 
if they want to discuss a new project that they might want to work on me with. I I often make time for it, but there's occasional times where people don't, I don't know, they, it feels like maybe too vague, like they, they don't know what they want yet and they're just kind of exploring like arbitrary things or right. um, looking to connect and I'll usually avoid those. So I guess it's like the more work people have done, um, before the meeting requests, the better. Um, the more like specific value they can provide in terms of like they like if they want to talk about credit card processing, that might make a lot of sense. But I might be like, well, what exactly do you want to know about credit card processing? And they're like, well, actually, I want to know about fraud. And I'm like, well, I haven't really ever worked in fraud, but I'm happy to jump on a call for like 15 minutes and see if there's something I can give you help with. But just kind of like time boxing and making sure that it's like I'm only spending the right amount of time on things and. I'm not committing to things which aren't uh, important or I can't help with in reality. All right. Very interesting. And now when you have to help somebody out or maybe just talk to somebody, do you prefer that they just send all of the deal, all, all of the details in the email so that you can respond to it, take your own time to think about it? Or uh, do you prefer a quick 15 minute chat and be done with it? Usually it's best if they have the email as short as possible, but as specific as possible. If the email is very long, I often procrastinate on it because I, I don't really like spending that much time in my email. It works a lot better if there's a very specific ask, like over like DM for me personally. And I try and respond right. to things like as quickly as possible. I see. And do you have any specific hours where you take calls or based on the time zone of the person asking for a call? It's often based on the time zone. If I'm in a lot of calls, I might like block them together and give myself a break. There's like a specific process that I'm running. I like hiring people or whatever it might be, which is just an example. It's not relevant to my life right now. I might like block out periods and like try and schedule things as back to back as possible. But it, it can very much depend on the process. Got it. So, okay, so this next question could be a little personal, but uh, if do you say yes to some those things where you do not get out of the conversation? You'll get nothing out of the conversation, but the other person might have a great impact on their decision or maybe on their lives. Do you say yes to these things often, occasionally or never? I usually say yes to them, actually. I I don't know. It's just like part of the Valley culture, I think, to just help people who like are trying to do something. Like if someone's like, here's something specific that I'm trying to do here's what I want out of this conversation. And here's why I think that you're a good fit for the conversation. It's usually a pretty, it's a fun conversation to have. And my goal, as I described earlier, or like one of my interesting things to do is to hang out with smart people who are trying to do smart things. So um, if you're in those categories of like, I'm trying to do this thing, here's why it's interesting, here's why you might be able to help, here's why I want your feedback now, or here's what the, the introduction that I'd like you to make. It's kind of a no-brainer as long as people like, you know, show commitment. Got it. Okay, so if, suppose you get n number of requests throughout a week, what would be the ratio of saying yes to things and saying no to things? Would it be more towards yes or more towards no? It's more towards yes, but it's usually... I'd say it's probably because the um, the no's are like pretty obvious. Like people, there's a lot of people that make requests and then you can ask like for one follow-up uh, of some sort and they never get back to you on the follow-up. And so that might eliminate like 50% of the requests almost instantly. Okay. So if you actually follow up, you're already showing more grit than most people, which is unfortunate because I, oh, wow. I imagine that the lot of, yeah, the inbound can be like 
the, the cold inbound can actually be very low quality. The general inbound from like a, a friend of some sort can is usually pretty high quality uh, because people don't want to recommend someone that they that they don't have uh, they don't believe in. Oh, fantastic! So just asking them to follow up one more time usually eliminates fifty percent of the requests. Yeah, and it can be like literally the smallest follow up. They're like, "I have a company that I'm raising for," and you're like, "That sounds great. Could you send me a pitch deck like just you know like ten slides and like you know not even like I'm not specific like this, but like this is what I look for. Maybe like three hundred words about why now is the right opportunity or now whatever. Just like anything that's not basic. And many people never follow up. Many people are willing to make the ask, but they're not actually willing to do the work to make the ask easy to give. Oh wow, wow, absolutely! I totally agree with it. Okay, so have you recently tried to form any new habit? When was the last time you tried to form a new habit intentionally? Yeah, my New Year's resolution this year qualifies as a new habit, and it's a super simple one. I, I spent New Year's with a um, with a family, and they have a habit of chewing for four hours while they're eating dinner. Um, and so my habit is to now chew a lot. And it takes so much effort because meals take so much effort. Like the, you wouldn't imagine you eat like the smallest, tiniest bites, and then you mm-hmm. just chew until the food is like literally liquid. And I believe that it is an extremely positive health habit, but I, I cannot prove it yet. Oh, wow. But just to give you perspective, imagine like biting, like having a bite of like something maybe like a, a nickel sized and then yep. the amount of chewing that you do, like imagine eating the strawberry and chewing every single seed. So it's like you literally aren't eating those seeds, which are obviously extremely tiny things. And I think yes. most people are like, got to eat as fast as possible because they got to get back to work. Whereas like, I'm doing the opposite. I'm like, I, I'll currently watch TV while I'm eating lunch, especially if I'm like alone at home during a pandemic. Mm-hmm. But I um, will also chew every single bite or like ideally will chew every single bite. I still fail sometimes, but I am getting better. So I, I, I can just imagine you have to be really mindful of every chew that you do, isn't it? Yeah, and it makes the food actually taste better. It makes you more present. Your food does get cold, which is like really <laughs> weird because it's just not like you think good warm food is like better tasting in my head, but it is something that I found value in right now. Interesting. And how much longer does it take to chew intentionally many times versus just quickly finishing up a meal? At least twice as much time. And you end up eating less probably, which can be beneficial for some people, but like not idealistic for, or not the ideal that some people strive for either. Oh, wow. So you end up eating less because you get tired or maybe your stomach sends up the signal to the brain in the in due time. Yeah, there's a there's a belief of the signal thing. It's just like your stomach okay. gets to tell you faster. It's different for oh. different people, I assume. Got it. Perfect. Okay, so enough about productivity. If I have to ask if someday you have 15-20 minutes to kill time, do you have any tools, apps, websites that allows you to just kill time? To waste time? Yes. Maybe yeah, Twitter? I mean, Product time? Wait, you're asking me what tools I used when I'm trying to be more productive for 15 minutes? Or do you ask me no, what no, I... Less productive. When you have to, when you have to just pass oh. time. I, I spend a lot of time on Reddit and TikTok and Clubhouse right now, and I tweet a lot. And I still love taking photographs, but I don't post them to Instagram that much. So those are, those are my time wasters or time spenders. Oh, fantastic. All right, uh, Paul. So we are towards the end of the conversation. This is what I call a magical question. I ask every guest this question. If somehow magically you would get one extra hour every single day for the rest of your life, how would you spend it? I mean, do I live longer or do I just get one hour every day for the rest of my life? <laughs> one hour extra day. <laughs> one, hour, uh, one hour every day. 
I'm being a little bit silly. So I feel like the value of getting one extra hour every single day is from the mindset of trying to put more activities into your day. But ultimately, uh, I'm going to push back in like the in the specific way. And I don't think there is a need for an additional hour. Like, I don't think you need an extra hour to work out. You just need to do the things that are important to you in the order that they're important. So if you, yeah, like it, if you don't do something, it just means that it's not important to you and you don't want to do it. And that's like actually fine. And maybe you can come to terms with it and you can change it, or you can just stop shaming yourself or guilting yourself about not doing it because you don't want to do it, but give yourself room to breathe and let yourself do what's important or change what you want to do or change what you're doing. There's really only two different choices there. Brilliant, brilliant. So you are saying even if you got an, an, an extra, your days would still look more or less the same. Yeah, hopefully Amazing. I'm prioritizing my day based on what I actually um, want to do. And that can be a mixture of like what I want to do in terms of giving myself something that allows my my life to compound in interesting ways or what I want to do in terms of actually enjoying my life. Because I, I try and tell people, it's like people talk about the marshmallow test being like, if you, and it's the marshmallow test is like debatable, like whether or not it's actually true. But as far as like a cultural thing, we talk about the marshmallow test is like, if you don't eat the marshmallow and you get two marshmallows and hypothetically, you'll be more successful if you don't eat the marshmallow because it allows you to you know, compound your gains or something like that. So it's like, this can be extended to all different parts of life ideologically, where it's like, if you spend less now, then you get to have more money in the future. But the point of the marshmallow test is to have more marshmallows. The point of the marshmallow test is like to enjoy your life more. People often don't realize that you're supposed to spend parts of your life enjoying your life. You're not supposed to spend all of your life compounding into this future that may never exist in the way that you imagine it. And the marshmallow test is like weird and quirky because you get your marshmallow 10 minutes after you you know, say you don't want a marshmallow or you're willing to wait. But people might spend their entire life working to save yes. money to retire, to travel, but they really should just be spending, you know, some time traveling. Oh, wow. This is beautiful. This is such a beautiful conclusion to my question. Paul, if anybody wants to follow along your journey, what's the best way to follow along Twitter or something else? Yeah. Twitter or Instagram are both public profiles. I'm happy to follow and I engage people most often on Twitter. Perfect. I'll link both of those in the blog post as well as the show notes of the episode. Paul, before you go, how did you get this two-letter Twitter handle? What's the story behind it? I was, it's funny because like, I don't think I was an early adopter of Twitter. Other people have said I'm an early adopter, but I only signed up in like the first year. The reality is I just know the Twitter founders and they upgraded my Twitter handle. So it is definitely um, (laughs) being in the right place at the right time and knowing the right people. Oh, awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much, for uh, Paul, for the honest answer. So listeners, if you want to follow Paul, his Twitter handle is just PM. That's it. That's PM, his initials. Thank you, Paul, for taking your time to talk to me today. Thank you, everybody. This was Paul signing off.